Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Patrick Kiesling, and I'll be your host. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kara Meister, a board-certified and fellowship-trained pediatric otolaryngologist. Today, we'll be discussing coanal atresia and nasal piriform aperture stenosis, two important topics in pediatric otolaryngology. Dr. Meister, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's get started. Today's topics cover key concepts within the field of pediatric otolaryngology and relate to pediatric airway management, evaluation at birth, and management of congenital malformations. First, let's start with some embryology. Can you give us uh, some background on the development of the nose? Of course. So the embryology of uh, nasal development and nasopharyngeal development is pretty complex. And uh, like most things, it starts early. So nasal development starts around four to 10 weeks of gestation. And um, that's often actually before many families even know that they are expecting. And specifically, the migrating neural crest cells kind of reach the area of the frontal nasal um, prominences um, around four weeks. So there are five facial prominences, and these neural crest cells then come together and symmetrically form the nasal or olfactory placodes inferiorly. You can uh, see these placodes as a convex thickening on the surface ectoderm. Then we have these primitive nasal pits um, that are in every depiction of a developing embryo. Uh, They develop via a central depression in the placodes. This divides the placodes into medial and lateral nasal prominences. The medial processes um, have an enlarged caudal end called the globular process of his, um, which becomes the septum, the philtrum, and the premaxilla of the nose, as well as the medial crus of the lower lateral cartilage. And then we have the lateral processes, which form the lateral sides of the nose, the external wall of the nose, the nasal bones, the upper lats, the alat, and the lateral crus of the lower lateral cartilage. So I think it's easier to kind of remember this um, by envisioning the nose. And then if you can put together the medial and then the lateral, it does actually make some anatomic sense. And then these processes come together to form a horseshoe on each side with the open end um, facing the future mouth inferiorly. As these pits deepen, they create the nasal cavities on each side. Um, So right now we're at about week five and we have these two upside down horseshoes. Um, And then a groove forms between these. Um, The bucconasal groove is the name. And this around week six will form the floor of the nasal cavity. In the back of the nose, the groove actually doesn't entirely fuse. Instead, that nasobuccal membrane, or the oronasal membrane, forms over the posterior most aspect and separates the nasal cavities from the oral cavity. So this is an epithelial membrane, and this will definitely come into play during congenital anomalies of the uh, nasal cavity. So now we're at like the mid-sixth week to the seventh week. The membrane is supposed to rupture to form that posterior coena. And as that membrane dissolves, the primitive nasal cavity and the oral cavity now finally communicate freely. So by the seventh week, each nasal cavity will be open to the outside through a nostril and communicate posteriorly with the pharynx via the primitive coena. If this oronasal membrane isn't ruptured, the posterior coena is obstructed and coenal atresia can develop, which is one of the topics we'll discuss today. 
All right, it seems like any change in the normal embryologic development of the nose could definitely result in a congenital deformity, as you were alluding to. We won't be going through all known deformities today, but as we take a dive into our topic today, let's talk about nasal obstruction in neonates. In a baby with nasal obstruction, what is the differential diagnosis we should uh, be considering at first? Sure. So remember, babies are nasal breathers at birth. We use the term obligate nasal breathers, which is a bit of a misnomer, but they definitely depend on the nasal cavity and a patent nasal airway for the majority of their breathing, especially during the first six weeks and potentially up to the first six months. And so because they are these obligate nasal breathers, nasal obstruction is going to manifest with respiratory distress or tachypnea. And the hallmark is a cyclical cyanosis. So the baby is not able to breathe. Then they cry, which prompts them to open their mouth and breathe through the mouth. And that relieves a bit of their um, respiratory distress. And then the whole cycle goes again. And so there's this, this cyclical cyanosis is kind of the key term. Uh, the nasal obstruction um, causes increased respiratory distress during feeding as well, because if the mouth is full of milk, it can't uh, be used to kind of be that other pathway for breathing, right? So we'll see this worsening with feeding. Um, oftentimes there's nasal discharge. There can be failure to thrive. And then uh, another hallmark is an inability to pass um, a five French suction catheter through the nasal passage. I also like to take a dental mirror and use it as a quick test, put it underneath each nostril and see if um, the mirror fogs. If it doesn't, that might be a sign that you have some uh, congenital nasal stenosis. Um, Today, we're also going to talk about coenal atresia, which is one of my most favorite topics, but it's part of a broader differential diagnosis. And so thinking through other possible etiologies, um, there are infectious um, causes such as snuffles. We've actually seen um, a run of syphilis in our area of Northern California lately. Um, there can be newborn rhinitis or the term rhinitis of infancy, which is not necessarily thought to be infectious, um, but may be um, hormonal or related to maternal um, medications. Um, there can Babies can get viruses, absolutely. Um, there can be a nasolacrimal duct which may or may not be accompanied by a dacrocystostele. Um, these can engorge pretty quickly um, during the first few weeks of life and make babies, babies sick um, pretty expediently. Um, they'll also present uh, with respiratory distress if they have bilateral um, nasolacrimal duct cysts um, that are obstructive. Congenital nasal piriform aperture stenosis is also on the differentials. This is an anterior um, bony um, narrowing of the of the aperture there. Um, you can have mid-nasal stenosis. Um, this might be caused from uh, congenital bony changes, such as a um, birth trauma resulting in septal deviation. Um, and then there's the whole list of um, masses. So these are things from glioma, dermoids, teratomas, hemangiomas, encephalocele's. So one big thing in the differential is these uh, congenital nasal masses. Great. So let's talk first about coenal atresia. You mentioned how this could embryologically develop. What exactly is coenal atresia? Sure. So like we just talked about, coenal atresia is really a congenital obstruction of the posterior nasal apertures, um, which we call the coena. 
Um, this occurs when that nasobuccal membrane fails to rupture or dissolve around the seventh week of development. So when this membrane remains, it prevents the patency of the nasal cavity posteriorly. When I meet families of, of children who have this problem, I like to use the phrase that every baby was like this at some point in the womb. It's just that, you know, your, your baby didn't lose that, uh, that membrane. And so we, we can help this problem. Um, so coanal atresia is really a, a blockage of that posterior nasal aperture. Um, there are different types of coanal atresia. So there's bony, membranist, or mixed, um, which is a combination of membranous and bony. Um, mixed is the most common, which is about 70% of the cases, followed by bony. And then membranous is actually pretty rare. The bony component of coanal atresia arises from the pterygoid plate in the vomer. And that's important anatomy to understand when we think about uh, treatment for this. Two huge things to think about with coanal atresia. Number one, is it unilateral or bilateral? Um, unilateral is more common. It's about two-thirds. And for whatever reason, it's predominantly on the right. And it can actually go undiagnosed uh, up until past the first year of life. And bilateral is going to be much more severe. So these kids are going to have the cyclical cyanosis, failure to thrive, respiratory distress, and um, the other big thing to think about besides unilateral or bilateral is, is the child syndromic? And so we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I wanted to put it out there um, kind of from the onset. Absolutely. And so as we dive into the associations with this diagnosis, how common is coenal atresia? What sorts of epidemiologic factors are we aware of with this condition? And then as, as you just mentioned, what sorts of conditions um, is coenal atresia associated with? Sure. So, you know, all, all of us pediatric otolaryngologists are a little bit biased um, because we um, practice in a tertiary or quaternary uh, care center. I would say that we see a handful of these per year. So it's definitely not, um, not exceedingly rare, right? You're going to see it um, as an otolaryngologist. Uh, the numbers break out to being uh, about one in every 7,000 live births, and we do know that it affects females about twice as often as males. Most common syndrome that it's associated with is CHARGE syndrome. So CHARGE stands for coloboma, heart defects, atresia of the coena, growth retardation, genital abnormalities, and ear or hearing abnormalities. Um, a mentor of mine used to say that the, uh, the charge ear has a very classic appearance. It looks kind of like a Nike swoosh. And once you see one, if you think about that, you'll remember that trademark. In bilateral atresia, about 50% of those kids will have charge syndrome. And um, it's really important to think about that before you take the child to the operating room, number one, so that you can perform a uh, microdirect laryngoscopy and bronchoscopy to evaluate the whole aerodigestive tract, um, but also so that you can be sure that the child doesn't have any congenital heart disease that can make your repair very interesting. Um, we do know that there are other associations, uh, Apert syndrome and uh, Cruzon syndrome, which are syndromic craniosynostoses, uh, Treacher Collins, and then Trisomy 2118, um, 22Q. Common and the Vectral Vader associations are all um, associated with coenal atresia. 
As far as exposures, it's uh, there are some teratogens, mainly vitamin A, and the prenatal use of thionamides, which um, include methimazole, um, which can be used to treat um, hyperthyroidism in pregnancy. So overall, even in children who don't have a known syndrome, we know that congenital anomalies are actually present in about 50% of children with unilateral atresia and 60% with bilateral coenal atresia. So keep a high suspicion, put on your pediatrician hat, and uh, try to do a comprehensive evaluation of these babies, especially before any surgical intervention. So I know that we mentioned some of these details a bit earlier, but Let's talk a little bit more about how these uh, babies typically present. Sure. So um, really, it's going to come down to unilateral or or bilateral, making a huge difference in their presentation. So, you know, those unilateral kids may not be obvious at birth. As part of many newborn assessments that will often pass suction catheters, but if the baby's otherwise uh, healthy, that doesn't necessarily always happen. And so the thing that you'll see is the parent will come in and they'll say, they always have a runny nose out of the right side, and it doesn't seem to get better or worse ever. That is should be a suspicion to try to figure it out. I do start with that uh, mirror fog test, but the child's going to need uh, a nasopharyngoscopy in the clinic as well. Bilateral coenal atresia will look very different, as will any complete nasal obstruction in a baby, whether it's bilateral coenal atresia or a large encephalocele. Um, and that really goes back to being that obligate nasal breather. So we talked about the cyclical cyanosis, um, put that in your mind, and then the suction catheter obviously will not pass um, through either side on these uh, on these babies. And on endoscopy, it can be a bit disorienting, um, but I like to make a pass along the floor of the nose as well as kind of through the middle meatus. And if I can't get through on either side, um, I have a pretty high index of suspicion that there's uh, a bilateral nasal obstruction of some sort. Once some version of coenal atresia or you know, nasal obstruction is suspected, how do we formally make a diagnosis? As with everything, you always want to start with the history. Um, I think that that's really important and it can kind of narrow your differential. Is this unilateral? Is this bilateral? Um, is it something that we're going to need imaging for? Um, and is the baby safe to go for that imaging? So those are kind of the, the kind of the big things to think about. Um, typically, when we get this call as consultant physicians, it's the neonatal ICU or the pedi- or the nursery pediatrician saying we're not able to pass that five French suction catheter, right? And so I think it's reasonable to try yourself um, as well because the the nose can be swollen from birth. So if mom had a lot of fluids or resuscitation, um, certainly a baby can have a swollen nose. And when you come a few hours later, um, you're able to pass that catheter. And then it's kind of you know, you've solved the problem. If you can't, my next uh, step is flexible nasal endoscopy. I find rigid nasal endoscopy to be really difficult uh, in neonates, um, but that's an option as well if you have a very small, um, very small rigid endoscope. Or um, one trick is you can actually use um, an otoendoscope, um, which works pretty well uh, in these little babies. The we had a, a fellow um, who was who was excellent who used to put a little 
um, piece of paper, like toilet paper or tissue in front of the baby's nose to see if it moved as well. I, I prefer um, the mirror. And then once you have a suspicion, um, you need to get some cross-sectional imaging. So depending on what you think this might be, um, your two options are really CT or MRI. CT is going to give you better bony detail, of course, but it does come with a decent amount of radiation. Um, and if the baby has unilateral coenolatresia and you can grow them, even to a year if if you if you can, um, then I like to defer uh, CT until right prior to surgery, right? If the baby has bilateral, you may not have that luxury because you're going to need to do an intervention. And CT is really going to be able to tell you um, what the, the bony component of this is. And it's important to know that because um, it will influence your repair. The other option is MRI. And on endoscopy, it's not always clear um, the cause of nasal obstruction. And so if you have any suspicion that maybe this isn't coenolatresia and is in fact an encephalocele or um, glioma or other type of obstruction, obtaining the CT and the MRI together is, is super important and can be very helpful as well. So once a diagnosis of coenolatresia has been made, we have talked a bit about that surgery might be um, coming down the line, but what does initial treatment look like for these babies? Sure. So um, as mentioned, if bilateral atresia is suspected or diagnosed, first and foremost, establishing a safe airway is the first step. So an oral airway can be placed to help stabilize breathing. Uh, the neonate is uh, fairly tolerant of that. Um, and the same principle, there's something called a McGovern nipple that can be used. And with a McGovern nipple, you basically just take a common bottle nipple and you cut it at the end, creating a passage for air. So you, and then you put the nipple in the baby's mouth and kind of harness it or fix it around the head so it stays in place. And essentially, you are making them have that crying open mouth posture. Um, occasionally, especially if there is concurrent congenital heart disease, the baby will need to be intubated um, for, for airway management. And um, like all functions of the aerodigestive tract, um, we're thinking about airway first, but we're also thinking about um, feeding and swallowing. So if a baby has bilateral coenolatresia, we may need to think about either gavage feeding um, or OG feeding as well. Just to re-emphasize, really doing that full evaluation um, of potential other comorbidities is, is super important as you prepare for um, your surgical decision-making and get ready for the operating room. And speaking of surgical repair, what does that entail for these patients with coenolatresia? Sure. So it's actually um, simple in concept. So the goal of surgery is to uh, re-establish the patency of the coena posteriorly so that the baby can breathe through its nose. Um, so you want to um, take down that membrane or bony um, plate that, that didn't go away on its own. And there are really um, a few ways to do this. So historically, we used a transpalatal approach. Um, there is some literature that this might disrupt orthodontic growth um, and lead to palate deficiencies and crossbite deformities and is really less common today now that we have um, pretty slick endoscopes. So typically, um, our repair is going to be transnasal and endoscopic. 
Endoscopic can be challenging because this is a very small nose um, and it does require small instruments. And typically I like to grow the baby until um, they're at a few pounds at least, um, but it really just depends on the baby's presentation. Um, we think about decongesting the nose um, with Afrin. want to be really careful about that dosage in the neonate um, and using small rigid endoscopes um, and thinking about those otoendoscopes as well can be, can be really helpful. Oftentimes, we'll use um, atresia dilators. So sometimes these are Hagar dilators. Um, to, to puncture that plate um, is important. I'm going to go back quickly um, to our imaging and, and thinking about the, the syndromes that can be associated with this. It's really important to look at the size, shape, and orientation of the skull base. And the reason is because when you're pressing, when you're pushing in that dilator, having a sense of that angle um, is, is super important. And children with charge can have abnormalities um, at the skull base, actually. And so knowing that up front can make this part of your procedure much safer. You then uh, need to resect some of the posterior nasal septum if it's um, a severe bony stenosis, um, especially for bilateral. And you can actually perform nasoceptal flaps um, to kind of cover that uh, that area where the where you take down the posterior septum and the vomer. Um, and the nasal septal flaps can lay kind of lay down by those bony edges. Um, and I have started more recently using steroid eluding stents um, into um, that area. Um, the other option is a steroid drop like Predforte uh, in the immediate postoperative uh, period as well. I will caution that there have been some reports with steroid drops of inducing adrenal insufficiency because these are very small babies and the nose is really great at absorbing medications. So uh, be cognizant of how much uh, steroid you're giving the child through the uh, nasal route. And then while it's not common, when I'm prepping these families for surgery, especially if they are syndromic, I tell them that we're going to get to know each other because usually we can get patency, but there's a high incidence of um, restenosis. And we're really thinking about that anywhere from two months um, to years afterwards. And we like to think that we can avoid it with good postoperative care and the right surgery up front. But especially in those syndromic ch children, it's sometimes two steps forward and then one step back. And, and staying on it is important. And letting the family know up front that this is a risk um, can help prevent any emergencies. You know, managing that recurrence can be balloon dilation. Sometimes it's a um, just taking down a little more bony growth as the child grows themselves. Um, but I think being pretty transparent about that. I have seen less recurrence um, with the use of steroid eluting stents, but um, you need to let the family know that these devices are not FDA approved for this indication um, and make sure that they understand that as well. Great. Thank you for walking us through all of that. Now that we've discussed coenalotresia, let's discuss another cause of nasal obstruction in newborns, congenital nasal piriform apteristenosis. So this is a condition that frequently comes up when we're discussing the differential diagnosis for nasal obstruction in general, as well as coenalotresia. Uh, can you talk a bit about what the pathophysiology of this is? Absolutely. So this is one of my favorite diagnoses, and I, I think that it's probably underdiagnosed, to be honest with you, um, but in its severe form, um, it can 
also lead to this dramatic nasal obstruction causing respiratory distress uh, in the neonate. And the pathophysiology is really bony overgrowth of those nasal processes of the medial maxilla, which leads to a narrowing of the nasal inlet. So effectively, it closes off uh, the nasal passages, um, and you can get a presentation very similar to bilateral coenal atresia. Patients with um, piriform aperture stenosis can present shortly after birth with noisy breathing, respiratory distress, apneic episodes. Um, it, again, worsens with feeding, improves with crying, and there can be a range of severity corresponding to both the degree of bony stenosis as well as any soft tissue edema that may be superimposed. So with that in mind, how do we diagnose this specific pathology in comparison to coenal atresia? It can be a little bit more tricky to diagnose, um, but usually um, the team will have difficulty passing that five or six French suction catheter, um, and it can be severe enough to where it interferes with, say, fogging on a mirror or moving the cotton um, or gauze wisp in front of the nares. Um, nasal endoscopy is sometimes able to show you that obstruction, but other times it's just really difficult to do. So it's like, man, I can't get this in there. Um, which uh, for someone who does it often, you'll be able to get a sense of that. Um, really being able to diagnose this is dependent on CT because again, we're looking at that bony aperture and the kind of hallmark is a transverse diameter of each aperture of less than three, or when you combine it from aperture to aperture, you're less than eight to 11 millimeters. Great. And so are there any other congenital abnormalities associated with piriform aperture stenosis? Absolutely. So um, even though piriform aperture stenosis um, comes from both sides of the nose, remember it's those um, medial nasal processes. And so think of it as a midline anomaly. And specifically, we think about the associations as being other midline anomalies. So importantly, the child can have an absence of the anterior pituitary gland or other pituitary anomalies, and 60% of them will have a central maxillary incisor that is single. So instead of having two front teeth, they have one front teeth. Um, they can also have um, intracranial abnormalities such as craniosynostosis or holoprosencephaly. Um, many of them will have a submucous cleft palate, which makes sense, right, when we think about the embryology. Um, and there is an association in the literature of hypoplastic maxillary sinuses, though this can be uh, hard to diagnose in a newborn. It's really something you're thinking about on down the road. So getting a brain MRI should um, be part of your evaluation um, and specifically thinking about an endocrinology consult um, to look at their hypothalamic pituitary axis prior to anesthesia is um, also very prudent. And then once this diagnosis has been made, how should these patients be managed and how does this differ from coenal atresia? So it, it, it differs and it is the same. So our, our big things, our big takeaways are the same, right? Stable airway, essentially the same airway ladder that we use for coenal atresia, oral airway, McGovern nipple, intubation if needed. If you can, using something like high flow um, that 
improves laminar flow can kind of squeak by in some of these kids and and temporize the baby. These babies can be very variable in their um, presentation. So the stenosis may be mild and managed non-surgically, really by focusing on the soft tissue component, things like afrin, um, nasal steroid drops, nasal suctioning, adding saline back into the nose. And then as the baby grows, it can become, become less severe. Um, some people have tried stenting with endotracheal tubes, um, but that can lead to um, kind of rebound edema as well as ulcerations of the ala, which can be a, a big challenge to back out of. Um, and if the baby fails those more conservative measures or the stenosis is severe enough that it's um, really pushing you um, to intervene, such as failure to thrive or that cyclical cyanosis or severe obstruction like pulmonary hypertension, then we do think about uh, surgical approaches in these babies. Um, trying to grow them until they're bigger is um, can be helpful, but really it just depends on um, the severity of the stenosis and what that clinically looks like in the baby. Uh, surgery for these um, children, they're endoscopic, transnasal, as well as sublabial approaches. Really, it's all about getting that that bony um, aperture widened, right? And so um, bony removal using endoscopic instruments similar to those that we use in the foamer, the septum of coenal atresia, as well as very tiny endoscopic drills can be used. Um, again, I do use steroid eluding stents um, in these babies. Um, I've gotten a little more brave in how long I leave them in, um, but I have found pretty good results um, in, in using those as well. Great. I think this was a really amazing review of two important causes of pediatric and specifically neonatal nasal obstruction. Anything else you'd like to mention or make sure we cover related to these topics? Sure. So um, I think the big uh, pearls to take away is that um, topical management can really buy you some time. So oxymetazolin and steroid drops. Um, but remember that these are very small babies um, and everything we do has side effects. So be cognizant of how much of those medications you're giving the baby. The other huge takeaway is don't be myopic, right? So these babies are a few hours or a few days old, and very often they're going to have something else going on. And so to ensure their safe surgical management, rule out heart disease, rule out uh, brain abnormalities, and really try to understand um, what else might be going on with the baby. And then the last um, piece to take away is today we've really focused on coenal atresia and piriform aperture stenosis. And while they are two wonderfully interesting diagnoses, um, there's a whole host of things that can lead to congenital nasal obstruction. Um, everything from um, infectious to inflammatory, um, traumatic, and uh, neoplastic things on our differential diagnosis. And so maybe we'll come back another day and do another podcast thinking about those, um, but keep a broad differential when you're evaluating these babies um, on your NICU consults. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Meister. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. In summary, there are many potential causes of neonatal nasal obstruction. Coenal atresia is a congenital obstruction of the posterior nasal apertures and this occurs when the nasal buccal or oronasal membrane fails to rupture or dissolve around the seventh week of development. Quainal atresia can be classified or described as bony, membranous, or mixed membranous bony, and can be unilateral or bilateral. Bilateral coenal atresia is characterized by cyclical cyanosis that improves with crying and worsens with feeding. 
A flexible suction catheter will not pass on either side of the nose in bilateral coanal atresia, and flexible endoscopy will also be unable to advance beyond the nasal passages. Coanal atresia is frequently seen in the setting of other congenital conditions and syndromes, the most common of which is CHARGE syndrome. Definitive diagnosis occurs by CT, which characterizes the type of coanal atresia, and surgical intervention reestablishes communication between the nasal passages and the nasopharynx. Another cause of neonatal nasal obstruction is congenital nasal piriform aperture stenosis, which results from bony overgrowth of the nasal process of the medial maxilla, leading to the narrowing of the nasal inlet. This condition is associated with midline craniofacial abnormalities, including pituitary anomalies, single central maxillary mega incisor, craniosynostosis, and holoprosencephaly. This condition can vary in severity, though the most severe obstructions will present similarly to bilateral coanal atresia, secondary to obligate nasal breathing for infants in the first several months of life. Mild stenosis can be managed non-surgically with medications, including steroid drops. More severe stenosis is typically addressed surgically with bony removal to assure adequate patency of the nasal cavity to the nasopharynx. Now on to our questions. For patients with bilateral coanal atresia or severe nasal piriform aperture stenosis, what airway management strategy can be implemented to address the obligate nasal breathing nature of infants? For these infants, an oral airway can be placed, or a McGovern nipple, to address cyclical cyanosis or apneic episodes associated with bilateral coanal atresia or severe nasal piriform aperture stenosis. Next question, coanal atresia can be unilateral or bilateral. Which is more common? Which side does it more frequently occur in? And which sex is typically more affected? Unilateral atresia is more common, seen in about two-thirds of cases, and this predominantly occurs on the right side. This condition affects females twice as much as males. And last, what measurements define nasal piriform aperture stenosis on imaging? Nasal piriform aperture stenosis is diagnosed when the transverse diameter of each aperture is less than 3 millimeters or when the combined aperture width is less than 8 millimeters. And that's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for joining us on Head Mirror's ENT in a Nutshell. We'll see you next time.